This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Well, over the next week and a half, we're going to spend parts of our shows looking at various financial issues that are important topics in the race for the White House. Right now, we're going to take a look at health care. Joining us here in the studio to take a look at the plans of both of the candidates, we are joined by Stephen Hunt and Harry Ja, who are radiologists at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, along with Scott Harrington, who's professor and department chair in healthcare management here at the Wharton School. As always, great to see all of you. Thank Thanks, you very Dan. much. Thanks great to have you. Thank you. Hi, Dan. So this is this is Stephen talking. So just to just to really briefly uh, lay out the plan, which anyone can find on um, on Mr. Trump's website, uh, Make America Great Again. Uh, he basically has a seven point plan uh, that he has developed, um, uh, and uh, many of these points I think are going to find resonance um, across the aisle uh, with both Republicans and Democrats, uh, and and very strongly, of course, with Independents. The first point of his plan, of course, is repeal Obamacare. This is something I think that this is a, a very popular part of the Republican Party platform. Um, uh, but, uh, but beyond that, um, he wants to modify existing law to uh, promote the sale of health insurance across state lines, which he believes will encourage competition and will, will decrease the insurance cost. He wants to allow individuals to fully deduct health insurance premium payments from their tax returns, um, so make it more of a, of a tax uh, um, uh, deduction. Um, he wants to allow individuals to use health savings accounts and to con- contribute to them tax-free. And very somewhat controversially, he wants to make it to where you could actually uh, gift that to your to your heirs um, and so not tax it at death. He wants to require price transparency, something that the, the Democrats have been – and both sides of the aisle have been talking about for a long time from health care providers. He wants to provide block grant Medicaid to the states. Um, and so instead of this being a federally administered program, he'd like Medicaid to be more in the hands of the states. And then finally, he wants to remove um, remove barriers to selling drugs from – imported drugs from Canada, for example. So he says the FDA already sends regulators overseas to monitor these drug factories. Um, why can't we allow drug importation? So that's the seven points of the plan just to lay it out. And I think that um, I think that he has done a very good job getting out in front of this issue with some popular proposals. Um, I, I will uh, give the caveat, you know, I am, a, I am a Hillary Clinton supporter, but I think that she has not, she is somewhat lagging behind in, in really getting out there with some of the same um, uh, proposals that have real resonance with the American public. Scott? Mr. Trump's proposals are outlined in about three or 400 words on one page. They're necessarily very vague. There's clearly a political element here and that you don't want to be too specific because anything you put out there that's very specific, you're going to get nailed on. Uh, one of the things that he seems to stress and maybe get some residents is the issue of selling insurance across state lines. It's an example of an issue that if you dig underneath the hood a little bit, gets complicated, people's eyes gloss over and they don't want to listen to you anymore. What really matters in that issue is the extent to which a company could become licensed in one state and abide by the rules in that state and then not abide by the rules in other states. That tends to be kind of inconsistent with the Republicans' notion of letting the states decide how to regulate as opposed to the federal government. But really, right now, companies can 
pretty readily get licensed in multiple states. The key issue is to what extent they would be able to license in one state and then avoid regulations in other states that drive up the cost of coverage. And right now, his plan is really silent on that. In fact, it says as far as licensing across state lines, selling across state lines, that a company basically would have to abide by all the rules and regulations in each state where it yeah. writes. So it's just it's just not clear. I think we'll hear a lot about it. It's a talking point. In one of the debates, Mr. Trump emphasized again and again that this was going to be a game changer. Uh, if Obamacare were to be repealed, there is a proposal about selling across state lines that might have a significant impact. But by and large, I don't really think this is likely to be a game changer. I think what's more interesting about Mr. Trump's proposal is he has endorsed the idea of block grants for Medicaid, and he has made you know the obligatory statements about price transparency, supporting health savings accounts, and the yeah. like. Harry? Yeah, so the thing with um, uh, Mr. Trump and Trump care and everything about Mr. Trump is that it's important not to make Mr. Trump a straw man argument against everything that we have today. And uh, uh, the Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, has um, had, has done some good, but there has been some uh, side effects from that. But I'll just take the point about the health sa savings account, because it will take me to this, one of the side effects of Obamacare. Health savings account, in theory, is very good. And Mr. Trump's plan to allow it to be transferred to the air, you can imagine how good that would be. You know, you're, you're going for a jog and you tell your son, son, I'm not running for my life, I'm running for your life. There's, there's definitely some willfulness that can come from that. The problem is that HSAs only work in certain qualified health plans. And there's one emerging um, um, uh, sub-market, which is the direct uh, direct patient care, mm -hmm. GPs that uh, primary care, and other physicians that take um, uh, that go out of insurance, that go out of the regulatory hurdle of uh, the Affordable Care Act, and are able thus to charge lower prices. And people can't use HSAs for that. So there's certainly some things that we can do with the Affordable Care Act without necessarily appealing, repealing it, that uh, Mr. Trump has brought up. So he has some very good points in that plan, I think. Yeah, I think that one would really like to contrast with what Hillary Clinton's proposals are. And there yeah. we see we really see the division between the parties very clearly, because overall, what the Democrats propose is more government regulation of health care, even going beyond Obamacare with greater centralization by the federal government. Right. And as a general rule, of course, the Republicans are the opposite. They want less regulation, more control by the states. Uh, the Republicans have put out a plan in the House that probably goes farther on some dimensions than what Mr. Trump has said thus far. But if you go back to uh, Senator Clinton's proposal, she basically wants to have a federal government public option for the health care exchanges under Obamacare, where you would now have the federal government writing policies directly. That would be a significant change and would greatly expand the federal government's reach and control and insurance markets. And she has also proposed uh, allowing people to go into Medicare at age 55. That would be a real fundamental change, which, sure, would, yeah. which would substantially expand the federal government's role in providing health care. So I think the big picture for people to understand is sort of more centralization through the feds or more regulation with maybe state control. And it's clear that Mr. Trump was on the side of the latter rather than the former. So so I would, I would agree with that uh, condition to some degree, uh, contrasting uh, these two plans. But 
One thing I will say is if we if we look back over the the uh, course trajectory of Trump's view on the matter, um, just if you look at his book, The America We Deserve, um, he states explicitly, I'm a conservative on most issues, but a liberal on health. It's unacceptable, but accurate that the number of uninsured Americans has risen to 42 million people. We must have universal health care. So he states that explicitly. He said, our objective should be to make reforms for the moment and longer term to find an equivalent of the single payer plan that is affordable, well-administered, and provides freedom of choice. And then he goes on to say, there is already a system in place for this, the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program. So if you look at the history of the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program, this is something that, um, you know, he states that allows 620 private insurance companies to compete. It's actually somewhere closer to 300. But in any case, however you look at it, what it does is it does, this is where it gets down to that, whether or not you can do something across state lines. What it does is, for example, someone in Iowa who is a federal employee, can choose to, amongst a, a panel of private and public options there, they can choose to be in a more public uh, optioned kind of plan. When the plan was set up in 1960, it was originally only supposed to be a universal health plan, uh, care plan administered by the federal government. Mm-hmm. What happened was that many of the employees, for example, the poster workers union and other unions in the federal system, said absolutely not. We already like our choice of being able to choose. For example, young people choose a high deductible health insurance account. Other people choose, you know, who are sicker or older might choose a more conservative managed healthcare management organization plan right. where they can limit their expenses. And because of that, um, that plan has outperformed Medicaid by far in terms of cost containment and in terms of almost any other metric in terms of satisfaction. So for example, employees are allowed every year, once a year to change plans. Right. Only about 5% of employees change a plan. <laughs> so there is a huge oh. inertial element. So what he, I think what he is saying, and he has said this explicitly in his books before, is that he likes the idea of, of FEHB program and that is what, for example, um, the Republican chair uh, uh, of uh, the, uh, uh, the young, uh, young Paul Republican, Ryan. Paul Ryan has his plan is basically built off of FEHB, and I think that that is that is more what you will see uh, arriving at as a political compromise under the under under a Republican presidency. Harry, well, the uh, the the crux of the Republican and also by extension, uh, Mr. Trump's uh, ethos is going to be competition. And the question is, what can you compete in healthcare, and how do people compete? And until we actually establish that or establish a framework for that, the costs or the savings of that competition will not be realised. So, how would insurers compete? Insurers generally tend to compete by trying to get the uh, poaching the healthiest patients, healthiest people. Right. Um, how would um, how would we compete in terms of the um, uh, in terms of devices and uh, for pharma? We compete by expanding the um, uh, the pool. Uh, Walmartizing uh, pharma, getting stuff from India, for example, that drug that whose price went up dramatically by Ma- Martin Shkreli was barely, um, you know, barely uh, ten cents in India. You know, if you asked me, I could have brought a whole lot in my <laughs> suitcase. I'm allowed two pieces of carry-on luggage. So the thing is, if you're going to allow that, then there are going to be some trade-offs that will come with that. Right. But we know, Harry, for example, under if, FDHB, if, I, if I may, if I may, uh, if I may, if you're going to allow that. You're going to have some trade-offs. It is not simply a case of this was manufactured in India and then brought over and sold over here. You don't want simply that. You want the entire package deal that comes with buying across. So you're going to have to allow people with their health savings accounts, with other deductibles, to actually cross the border into Canada and be able to buy the drug there. That's really what competition means. That's really what it means. If you can't have the same rule for the rest of the world, the rest of the world is not going to follow the American rule for 
um, with, you know, not being able to negotiate or you know high charges of farmers. So if you want to have price competition in the true way, you're going to have to have a lot of regulatory breakdown. And farmer on the last occasion on Obamacare managed to you know stuff their mouths full of gold, eighty million dollars, I believe, in order to prevent, amongst other things, competition or importation of drugs with Canada. So market sounds good. I'm certainly in favor of it. It comes with trade-off. And in order to achieve the market, you have to also take the risk that comes with importing drugs from India and other places. See? Well, I think that if you look at other programs that have copied the FEHB monocles, for, so for example, under George Bush, we were given Medicare Part D. That directly copied the language of the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program, and it has far been brought under brought under budget every single year of its outlay because of the competition piece. And so if you look at an FEHB kind of program, that is the piece of competition. So if you want to buy, for example, an HSA kind of plan, a young person under the FEHB, sure. they pay $2,500 a year. If you're an older person who needs, you know, you're sick, you have multiple chronic conditions, you now pay $7,800. So there's your range. Yeah. You have $2,500 on the young person, healthy person, uh, outlay, or you have $7,800, and that's basically the entire range, okay? So that's what you will see under an FEHB kind of system is, yes, you're going to have people who are underinsured per what the Democrats would define as underinsured. These folks, if they get into a bad problem, they only have limited insurance and they have a high deductible, yeah. okay? But the youngest people who are healthy are going to take that risk, whereas the older people are going to be paying up for what they need, which is a comprehensive plan, just like you put more of your money into bonds at the end of your life and less into stocks because you're less, you know, you, you have less, you're more risk averse as you get older. Right. So those are the kinds of differences that I think that there has been. It's been shown that FEHB works by virtue of historical accident, and I think that <laughs> we will, uh, and, and I think that we will, uh, we will see more from the Republicans on this. I think it's interesting that we're talking about the FEHB as this game-changing plan, where Mr. Trump has not said a word about this, and his advisors aren't talking. About that this. is in his book. He said, What, what year was that exactly. book from? It was 2000. Oh, 2000. That's 16 <laughs> years ago. Well, geez, this is, cra this is crazy. The FEHB is a really interesting program. It is an employment based program. The federal government heavily subsidizes the purchase of coverage. Moving to that type of framework for people that currently aren't in employee employer plans or those that are would really be fundamentally different. And I hate to say it, no one is talking about this. I think it would be very interesting if Mr. Trump were to get up and say, I want to move towards an FEHB model. This would be stunning. This would be front page news. I think, in fact, that uh, whatever he said in 2006, 2000 won't hurt him that much because it is sort of a pro-competitive model. Now, don't get me wrong. It's a very interesting framework, and it might be a framework for having cross, more cross-state competition and so on, but I have to say that this is not on the agenda at all right now, and, and certainly whatever Mr. Trump has said about health care thus far would indicate I'm surprised he knows that much about FEHB because during the debate when he talked about buying insurance across state lines, I thought it was one of his weakest moments in the entire campaign. It seemed to demonstrate that he wasn't really thinking too much about health care. Now, I'm confident that he will get really smart advisors on health care and that they will figure things out. But uh, I think this FEHB thing is a bit of a rabbit hole right here. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 in the studio with Scott Harrington of the Healthcare Management Department here at the Wharton School, Stephen Hunt and Harry Ja of the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Three great uh, resources. If you have a question, you're more than welcome to give us a call right now. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Harry? 
Yeah, so I think Stephen uh, is struggling with the fact that politicians change their mind. It happens, Stephen, happens to the best of us. So what he said 16 years ago may not be applicable now. But I want to take another point that uh, Mr. Trump uh, mentioned. And I think it's one of those kind of points which is like, let's cure global poverty. I have a great idea. But it sounds great in theory, but in practice, it doesn't really work as well as we'd like. Transparency, price transparency. Now, the, the idea that, you know, once you know the prices, it's like, you know, going to the duty-free, I see... Blue label is $250, red label is $125. You know, do I want to get an earful for my wife? No, so I choose the red label instead of the blue label. Right. Healthcare is not like that. I mean, it could be like that for marginal things. Do I need a knee MRI or not? Do I go to the uh, lower quality bidder or not? But when you're having a heart attack, when you're having a heart attack, you're not going to put a bid on Priceline. You're going to go straight to the hospital. You're going to say, oh, what stent are you using? Is it a drug-eluting stent? Right. Are you going to give me blood thinners of this nature? Have you read the latest paper in the NEJM? It doesn't work that way. It can't work that way. Healthcare is inelastic when prices are the highest, when you're most ill. Right. It's like, you know, Sahara Desert. If somebody, if you're dying of thirst there, are you, really of going water, to start, yeah. are you really going to say, how, what percentage is that evia and does it have bacteria in it? You'll take whatever you get. Having said that, having said that, the one bit which he can do, and it requires a little bit of government muscle, is to basically say to the hospitals, you cannot charge people these outrageous bills. This is not on. I mean, th I mean, what we're seeing here is not free markets. So to 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 do that is not an, uh, is not de uh, deserting the free market principles. What hospitals do is when they charge ten times the rate for Medicare just because somebody's uninsured or underinsured, right. that's price gouging. That's not free market. They're protected in other ways. So he can put some muscle there. He, and really, one of the issues which we kind of um, gloss over in all of this debate is that if we reduce costs we indirectly improve access. So the, the, the push towards access cannot really be achieved without the reciprocal muscle on the costs, whether that be done by the market or by the government. Stephen? Yes, I think that that was the choice. If you read all of the historical accounts of what happened with the Obamacare legislation, you had a portion of, of folks, including our own, uh, our own professor here from University of Pennsylvania, um, who were pushing on the cost equation. They really wanted to rein in costs, okay? But you had another group who was instead pushing on access. They said, you know, we have 42 million uninsured. That's the number we need to focus on, not on controlling healthcare costs. Hillary tried to do both in 1993. She got neither. So you had to choose which battles you were going to pick. And in the battles to control, to expand access, they had to line up all the players, including the hospital associations who ponied up $150 billion, the pharmaceutical companies who ponied up $80 billion, the insurance companies who ponied up $60 billion. They got these folks on board. Each of them was given a sort of a tax. If you look at how much was that they, they thought they were going to lose under the current legislation, each of them worked out their private deals, and then they all spent money promoting it. And, and getting the other side to lose and passing Obamacare. That's how the legislation was passed. They couldn't both control costs, in other words, give the middle finger to everybody who's going to pay for those ads, and at the same time, expand access. So they chose to expand access. The next president is going to be charged with, of course, controlling costs. And what that means is that in the end, that's going to mean decreased innovation because you're going to have less money going towards uh, research at pharmaceutical companies. That's a necessary cost in order to control costs. That's a necessary cost. Um, if they can, if they can regulate direct-to-consumer advertising, or in some way tax direct-to-consumer advertising, much as has done been done, as we talked on the show with uh, um, last week, with with other with other things, um, if you can put a uh, Padufa kind of mechanism in place where you would um, where you would tax the the uh, the uh, advertising and then have that flow back to the federal government, 
All of these things are going to have the effects of reducing healthcare costs. And just to just to answer that earlier point, though, about FEHB is not being talked about. Alan Atoven's been talking about this for decades now about managed competition modeled after the FEHB, and ever since it's you know and it's recently been adopted by the Netherlands as the healthcare system in the Netherlands, much after the FEHB program. John Kerry talked about it as the plan for all Americans to allow all Americans access to FEHB. Medicare Advantage is the reform plan based on FEHB. The Wyden-Bennett Act is modeled after the FEHB. So I think that this is not something that's been in the backwater. This has been active in political circles and will continue to be active in political circles, regardless of which side of the aisle you're on. Scott? Well, I'll resist the temptation to get the last word about the lack of any discussion of an FEHB in the current political environment or either party's platform, uh, although I guess I just did try to get the last word in. Um, I, I think, if you, as I read through Senator, some of Senator Clinton's proposals, I think there are some interesting areas where there could potentially be common ground. Now, the drug innovation, the drug prices and innovation one is a very thorny issue, and I really like what Steve said in that I think we have to understand that if we do things to restrict drug companies' abilities to price for innovative compounds, you are going to get less investment in innovation. Now, some of that innovation may not be worthwhile ex post, but we really don't know when those decisions are made, whether things will work or not. So this is a very, very thorny issue. Uh, But it does at least, we are going to have to think very carefully about what we might be able to do to change the trade-off right now. Right now, the emphasis is on promoting innovation. Are we willing to take less innovation to save money? And people need to understand that that's the issue and not think there's some pie-in-the-sky free lunch here, because I guarantee you there's not. The other thing is direct-to-consumer advertising, I think, is something that the parties conceivably could get together and at least talk about. It it is really strange that the United States has developed the system that it has for direct-to-consumer advertising. And I'm not endorsing any particular proposal, but I think paying some attention to what's going on there and whether or not more oversight is needed or whether more restrictions are needed might make sense. Now, again, at the margin, if you cut back on direct-to-consumer advertising through some type of regulation, at the margin, you'll get less innovation because companies innovate based on their ability to advertise and market their products once they're approved. So if they have less ability to advertise, you will get some reduction in innovation. I think that is an area that's worth exploring, and maybe there is a little common ground. And I would just say to that, as we talked about on the show last week, the the um, most drugs that are direct-to-consumer advertising are either Me Too drugs or they're not truly for orphan diseases. Because in orphan disease, all you need to do is say, here's an orphan disease. We know we have the only product. We don't need to mention the drug. So there's three types of, just again for the public, public out there listening, there's three types of advertising. The advertising of the drug, the advertising of the disease, and the kind where you combine the two. We're one of two countries left in the world, us and New Zealand, who allows the combining of the two. Most countries have outlawed that. Um, and it's the combining of the two that has the destructive effects and leads to a, a lot of spending for probably not a lot of benefit, from, even for the company. Because if I advertise Lipitor, it's been demonstrated by academic studies that if I advertise Lipitor, the, the, the folks go to their doctor, they ask for a statin, and they end up getting a different statin than Lipitor. Yeah, I think the um, – I think just getting back to – And we've got about a minute left, so – Get back to Trump care. I think one of the biggest things that Trump has done is that he's used the U word, universal – yeah. And I think it's a big paradigm shift for the Republicans. They've come to realize that healthcare, whether you call it a right or a privilege, must be accessible to all. And once you establish that common ground, then you can work on how best to deliver it. Scott? 
But Mr. Trump's proposals right now are so short on any idea of how he would move towards universal coverage. In fact, uh, I haven't studied the analyses, but the back of the envelope type things that are being done suggest that if you just take his plan, you would see a substantial increase in the number of uninsured compared to the status quo. Uh, again, there's a lot of hide, not hide the ball here, but but parties are very reluctant to put out specifics because everything you pro specifically is going to be attacked. But I think it's if he is in favor of universal care, then he's going to have to think through with his advisors how we can massage or change Obamacare to improve things at lower costs without having a great increase in the number of uninsured. Got about 30 seconds. Uh, I agree with all of that. You know, I think that we're going to see, we actually are seeing converging on many of these issues, uh, as the professor says. And so I think that we're going to, we are going to see some, some movement with either administration. We're going to see some movement towards uh, common ground. Great to have you all here. Thank you very much. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.